This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan, and my guest today is Julia Phillips. Julia has written a decidedly American novel. It's decidedly American, even though it takes place in one of the most exotically desolate provinces of Russia. The Kamchatka Peninsula is where Aliana and Sofia, two sisters, are abducted. And it's their abduction that introduces us to a world that I personally had never given a thought of until I read this remarkable first novel. Tayari Jones says of Disappearing Earth, Phillips is at once a careful cartographer and gorgeous storyteller. A mystery of two missing girls burns at the center of this astonishing debut. The complexity of ethnicity, gender, hearth and kin illuminates this question and many more. Welcome, Julia. Thank you so much for having me. I have to tell you, Disappearing Earth has been a novel which, and it doesn't happen often, but it's a novel in which all of my booksellers fought over as soon as the galleys came through the door. That makes me so happy to hear. I grew up obsessed with independent bookstores and these spaces and these booksellers. So to hear that is just a dream, a total dream. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. But first, I mean, uh, we were talking a little bit before we started. I think uh, my only relation to Kamchatka prior to reading this, I think, was in the game of Risk right. that I used to play with my father when I was a kid. Um, and you paint such a vivid picture of the Kamchatka of today that it's doesn't, it doesn't, it seems the exoticness, the exotic nature of it really isn't there. I mean, it could be anywhere. It could be anywhere USA. It could be any kind of of desolate, small community that any of us experience at any given time. Tell me the genesis of the novel and why Kamchatka. Yeah, I grew up a Russophile, pretty much. I always wanted to be a novelist. I was, that was my professional and creative ambition, but I also had this really abiding interest in Russia and in Russian. And I studied in Moscow in college for a semester, and I wanted to find some way to bring these two interests together. So I thought I want to set a novel written in English in Russia so then I can move to the country and research the book and sort of do it all at once, write and study Russian, because these interests were always so divergent before. So I was looking for a setting for a story. I didn't know what the story would be, but I thought I have to find a perfect setting. And there were a few things I I wanted to find a place with a a distinctive regional identity, a place that was um, maybe isolated or more contained feeling, um, as opposed to, you know, Western Russia, Moscow and St. Petersburg. Those are enormous sprawling metropolises. And it seemed like it would be hard to get a sense of that place as an outsider. Um, It's a difficult task no matter what, I think, but uh, I wanted to find a place that was perhaps a little more contained. I wanted to find some place that was uh, naturally beautiful because if I was going to move to a place, I wanted it to look nice around me. 
And when I learned about Kamchatka, I realized, well, this is everything that I wanted and more. It's incredibly geographically and historically isolated. It was a closed Soviet territory during most of the 20th century because it was a, a military base. So no foreigners were allowed to go there until the fall of the Soviet Union. And since then, it's opened up enormously, but still it has no roads connecting it to the mainland. It has so much of the territory. It's the size of California, but an enormous amount of the territory is protected natural land. It's, it's incredibly beautiful. It's full of volcanoes and geysers. and what, Like 40% of the land is volcanoes. <laughs> it's Some so, strange It's amount. so extraordinary. Yeah, I right. think there are 300 volcanoes there and, and one it, that's been in the news lately that they say is going to be so explosive that it's going to, you know, it's, I've been reading some very troubling headlines these days about volcanoes in Kamchatka. Um, but it, it's just a spectacular, spectacular place. And so when I learned about it, I thought, okay, I don't know what this story is going to be, but I know that I want it to take place here. Mm. So I applied for grants for two years to be able to go. And then in 2011, a grant came through, which is amazing. So I moved to the territory for a year to research this book. And when I got there, it's really gratifying to hear you say that it feels like it. it's at once specifically Kamchatka, and on the other hand, I hope relevant to many places, and, and especially to us here in the U.S., because I, I, when I came there, I found that what I was, the story I was finding was a story I had brought with me from the U.S., um, stories about violence and about power structures and about systems of harm stories about women especially and about race and sexuality and ethnicity these were things that profoundly informed my day-to-day -day in the U.S. and going to Kamchatka even though it's the other side of the world it didn't change that at all it, it only right. emphasized it and so the story I ended up writing is set in Kamchatka but I think is is a hundred percent and a American subjects, international it's, it's subjects. It's international. It's universal, I, actually. I, I hope, I hope. And the way you present it is universal as well. I mean, uh, why don't you talk? It's a very interesting structure that yeah. you've that you've uh, that you've uh, created in the book. Why don't you talk about the structure a little bit? It starts out in the month of August. Yeah, yeah. So those sisters that you mentioned, Aliona and Sophia, um, they go missing in the first chapter. They. It's not a spoiler to say it's very early in the book. And they're together. They are in the city center. They meet a man who offers them a ride home. And that ride ends up not taking them home. And every chapter that follows takes us one month forward from the day of their disappearance. And it introduces us to a different woman or girl in their community that's somehow impacted by this crime. So, you know, the next... The next chapter takes place in September, and it's a classmate. The next chapter takes place in October, and it is someone who works as a customs officer right. who kind of maintains the borders of the territory. And some of these characters are really closely related, like we meet the witness to the crime, or we meet their mother, or we meet the detective who's investigating right. their case, but some are really um, distantly related, and people who maybe have never met the sisters, but are still impacted and affected by this crime. And by having this sort of bird's eye view or by moving through a whole community, we can put together the pieces over the course of a year 
that lead to figuring out what happened that day of their disappearance. Um, so it's a sort of, it, it moves through the whole community. It moves through a lot of the region. It moves through a lot of time. And, and what I think puts the, um, turns the mystery on its ear is that not everything that you're reading about necessarily moves you toward the solving of the mystery. Mm -hmm. That's not the purpose of learning everyone's backstory. Yeah. The purpose of learning everyone's backstory is to learn about the different issues yeah. that these women in Kamchatka really face. And they're women, it's, it's ethnicity, it has to do even with issues of native peoples mm -hmm. versus, you know, Soviet, you know, the typical yeah. Soviet or the typical Russian yeah. um, dynamic, issues of gender, issues of love. I mean, it's, these are universal themes that you're reading about. And at the same time, you're being moved, you're being propelled forward. So, but it doesn't seem, the beauty of it is, it's the way natural life really um, flows. It's There's no contrivance here at all. That means an extraordinary oh. amount to me. I, I think so much of writing and of editing and preparing a manuscript with the hope of it one day becoming a book is so much, um, you know, contriving and then trying to make it not seem contrived. So that, that means an extraordinary amount. When I started that, the, the structure of it is very much intended from the start to create a, a range of, to depict a range of violences in women's lives specifically. So ranging from the um, rare and highly spectacular and publicized violence of the girls going missing in the first chapter, the abduction of a child by a stranger. But if I can interrupt, yeah, the interesting thing about that abduction yeah. is that there was another abduction yes. of somebody who was uh, of a more uh, uh, ethnically yeah. native per person. Right. And their abduction was less spectacularly written exactly. about or impacted than this one. So exactly. you dealt with that issue as well. Yeah, that these, these girls, because they're ethnically Russian, to our Americanized, to my Americanized white presenting, um, because they're very young, they are presented by an ethnically Russian media, media there as, as these perfect victims. And they're very much embraced and focused on and uh, fetishized in some way that I think we see all the time in our news. Um, what victims are sort of held up and championed and who is ignored or... Um, which happens in our culture every single day. All the time, yeah. all the time. And there's also, I think, as we hold up these so-called perfect victims or or hold up these unusual crimes in, in media and also media not only being news, but of course TV shows or, or books, we also sometimes separate it from the range of violences and harms and... Um, responsibility and culpability that underpins such an unusual violence. So so someone going missing is is not very very common. It's But then it's, there are other violences. But there are so many about. other violences. Um 
there are the violences of, you know, ranging like through this book, maybe a, a toxic relationship or maybe um, a, a medical trauma, someone who goes through an experience of hurt at a doctor's office, things that we don't talk about, things that we accept as commonplace or as inevitable or as everyday hurts that we do to other people that we tell ourselves are totally independent of the sort of um, unusual and compelling, you know, newsworthy violence that we read about or that we consume. And yet they are so linked to each other. They're not independent. Neither one is happening in a vacuum. These hurts are super, super connected. And there are characters in this book who see themselves as independent from what happened to the girls or what happened to Lilia, the indigenous character who um, went missing a few years earlier. And yet their actions, their behavior are completely linked to what happened to all three of those characters, all three of those young women. Um, and, and I hope that the structure of the book argues for that, that connection. Oh, it does. It does completely. Um, the other thing you did, which interested me when I, when I knew that, when I read about you being a cinephile and someone who was so involved in Soviet, mm. um, the Soviet life, was that, and I assume you must speak Russian, I imagine, and you probably read in Russian, and you chose to write in a decidedly 20th century American way about this, as opposed to some of the great 19th century Russian masters, let's say. Yeah. And I very much appreciated that, because that also brought us, um, that also brought us a sense of recognition. Um, is that, does that make sense to you? As was that a was that a was that a a conscious choice that you had made, yeah. or did it just come naturally from your from your writing style and the way you approach things? I think it was a conscious choice out of something that was already coming naturally. That that is, I think, I think both. I, um, it it wasn't a fascinating and challenging and interesting project to undertake in the first place to say, I'm going to move to Russia and write about Russia, write about Kamchatka from the point of view of folks who live on and grew up on Kamchatka. There's not a character here who is, for example, um, an American writer visiting the territory. Right. There's not that. And so there, there is already that imaginative leap into a different culture and a different country and a different way of life. And the challenge of that is immense. Um, and I leave it to readers to judge how well it worked. For me, I, in approaching that, I had to also look at what other challenges I was going to take on and what, what I wasn't what I didn't feel like was made any sense for me to take on. And one that didn't make sense for me to take on, I felt, was um, emulating or writing in the tradition of, you know, the golden age of Russian literature, for example, or contemporary American, um, contemporary Russian writers. That is not the tradition in which I mostly read or in which I, to which I have aspired. Um, which I study and try to emulate when I read and 
imitate and admire it is Anglophone writers. It's, it's especially American and Canadian writers. Um, folks like Alice Monroe or Louise Erdrich, those are the people I'm trying to write like. And, and for me then to sit down to this project and say, not only am I going to try to you know, set it in Kamchatka and have it be all Kamchatkans, but I'm also going to try to write it like Chekhov. <laughs> it just feels like... <laughs> it won't work. <laughs> no, it's, it's a fool's errand for me because right. it, I, I don't have any... I don't. Well, have you know, that. the voice you wrote it, it. There was a. I have to admit, when I read it, there was a little bit of dissonance, only mm. in the sense that, you know, I I approached it when usually when you read about an area like that, you're reading uh, you're reading from someone who is native to that area, and yeah. so you're reading it from their sensibility. And what was so interesting to me, and it became the true voice of the novel was the fact that it was somebody like you who was writing in your own um, in your own style, using your own vernacular, using your own way of approaching it, your own descriptions. And so it immediately created more of a bond with me as opposed to feeling like I was reading it, reading a book by someone in translation. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It was it yeah. really spoke to me in a very, very um resonant way um i think that when i was working on it very early on from the moment of coming up with the plot i had to say you know i had to admit to myself i had to set out right as a necessary condition i am american everything i'm seeing is through american eyes everything i'm experiencing is through american bias and i am not able to consciously compensate for that or cancel it out or become a neutral I move into this space in a way that I am you know absolutely filtering what I'm seeing with you know that is what I'm seeing around me is passing through onto the page untouched it is being shaped and touched by who I am and how I perceive it and that really there there's no getting the Americanness out of this like that's how I'm coming to yeah. the page. The other thing is, in terms of genre, did, were you, were you, did, did you approach this with any kind of nervousness in regard to it being uh, labeled as a mystery or a thriller or anything like that? Particularly the, along, I guess you know, like Alice Seabold or mm. something like that, in which you're dealing with uh, a whodunit in yeah. a sense. Um, I that's my hope. Frankly, my hope is that it would be. A literary thriller that that's how folks would see it i i worked on a, a different manuscript before this where i was reading a little differently and i felt that high literature had to be you know couldn't be plot driven and um i was aspiring to a sort of i don't want to say formless but I love character-driven book, and I think this is a character-driven book in many ways, but I I, I think I was trying to write something that um, had no story, and I didn't understand how to put in it other things that would be compelling or interesting. And that project never came together. I, I just wasn't, of course, like it had fundamental weaknesses. And as I came to the end of that, I thought the next thing I write is going to be I mean, it's going to have a story. I'm going to know what it's about. Something's going to happen to somebody. And 
I, it's going to be like the books I love to read. I love Alice Siebold. I love, I love it. I love her work. I love, I mean, I love the lovely ones. I love her memoir too. Like I love this sort of propulsive, I love to read thrillers. I love to read mysteries. Where there is a central, there's a central dilemma that's trying to be figured out. Yes. And and you've done that very, very well here. I hope so. Um, But I have to say each chapter stands on its own. I don't think I read through each chapter trying to find out who was going to solve them. You know, I didn't try yeah. to get through the chapter to find to the next chapter if that will get me closer to the solving of the murder. Yeah. I think what you did is you created such a rich environment that they each stand on their own as well. There's, a, there's something that I remember years and years and years ago. It had to do with these Irish, these Irish writers. Mm. And they would, they, they characterized, it was a review that I read of somebody who characterized the novel as being a novel with murder. <laughs> you know what I, I mean? Like it was yeah. a very interesting thing. And, yeah. and, and that's kind of, you know, you could talk about, you can talk about Crooked Letter, Crooked Letter by Tom Franklin. I mean, there are so many writers, Alice Siebold is yeah. another, yeah. in which horrible things happen. Yeah. However, the character studies are so, so strong that they stand on their own as well. I was, it makes me think about, um, I, I just read Eileen recently, belatedly, um, by Otessa Moshfeg. and. Right. And reading, I had read first about the way that she approached that book, you know, this sort of famous interview of her saying, I bought this, what, you know, how to write a novel in 90 days. And, and, and she's so upfront about saying, I tried to write this to a formula. I tried to write this to, you know, with this very specific goal in mind of, um, making it propulsive, making it straightforward, making it linear. And yet her fundamental, um, I mean, she's so brilliant. Like her fundamental weirdness like comes through. And it and that book is so rich and specific and fascinating and divergent from that linear plot in in incredible, mind-blowing ways. And and I loved to read that book and read that interview and think about how we set ourselves these goals. And then what we turn out is so um it isn't quite like the goal that we set, you know, but it's, it's so much fun, those divergences and, and they create, I hope, a richness to the world. Well, it's hard to keep yourself out of it. Yeah, it is. It really is. <laughs> so your strangeness, your weirdness, yeah. your whoever you are be, comes through in so many different ways. Um, tell me, you know, I know that this is a book that's edited. One of the editors is Robin Desser, oh. who... I'm a very big fan of, and she's edited some of my my favorite books. And um, tell me how, what that relationship was like. It, it, I'm struck speechless because it has been such an educational and transformative and loving and supportive relationship beyond my wildest dreams. To be able to work with her, she's been the editor of so many of my favorite, favorite, favorite books. Um, she, I didn't get an MFA and, and working with Robin has been the greatest writing education of my life. The book was in edits. We went through 11 rounds of edits. She was extraordinarily supportive. She never pushed. She always questioned. She, she would ask these questions to deepen the work to just say like, what is this? 
the way she approached the work was so dedicated to making it more itself, making it um, reach its fullest potential. How did you come? How did you and Robin Can, hook up? Through I. I know you were writing. You were writing prior to this for yeah. magazines and that sort of. Thing. I was trying to send out stories and essays and some nonfiction. I'd written a couple. Um, I mean some nonfiction about Kamchatka and about different things. And, and I was trying to get together this manuscript and I had been, um, I was very obsessed with the hurdle of the agent because this previous manuscript I mentioned, I, I queried a hundred agents and it just never happened. The project wasn't there and I wasn't there. Um, and with this book, I wanted to be a lot more strategic about how I was connecting with agents, how I was presenting the work. I wanted to have more credits um, to my name, more writing credits. And I met a woman. I I thought I'm going to do all this hard work. And really what happened was a most extraordinary, out of my control experience of good luck. It was amazing. I met a woman, a brilliant writer whose third book just came out, Jean Kwok, at a residency. And she was like, hey, you know what? Whenever you're ready. Um, I'll be happy to introduce you to my agent. And I was like, this can't be, but you know, I'm not going to put all my, my, my eggs in this basket. I'm going to, but in my heart, I thought, cause she's with Suzanne Gluck at WME. And I, mm-hmm. and I thought this is, you know, the greatest agent in the world. I, I'm not going to count on it, but I just believe it. Well, when the manuscript was ready, I told Jean and she said, send it to Suzanne and Suzanne took it. So it was the one agent, one agent. It was unbelievable. And that moment I think of over and over again, I think of Suzanne all the time because she truly, um, she changed my life and in so many ways. And in a way that feels like I remember the moment where she called to offer me representation and it was like a, a huge before and I feel like in that moment I stepped into a dream that I'm still inside. The fact that I'm here with you right now feels like I'm dreaming. It's it's incredible to me that the book is a real thing in the world that I get to travel with, that I'm in Miami where I've never been, you know. Um, and she made everything happen. Suzanne made everything happen. Suzanne. So she and, offered it to Robin. She and... offered it to Robin. We had this incredible. She she. We both walked out of a meeting with Robin and said to each other, like, this is the person. This is the person. It was just so clear that Robin is brilliant and caring and had a vision for this book that was exactly what I would have hoped and dreamed someone's vision would be. And it was somebody you wanted to collaborate with. Yes. Oh, my gosh. So from the time that the book was taken by Robin to the time it got published was how long? A while. So she bought it in March of 2017, and it came out May 2019. Okay. Yeah. So we were in edits for 13 months, Um, you know, just just me and Robin, like, kind of and it was an extraordinary experience because I kept worrying that at some point, you know, I think, uh, I don't know if this is something that stays through a writer's career, but certainly I associate it with the debut experience, a feeling of like, oh, everyone's going to get mad and disappointed and cancel it. And they're going to say, forget it, you know, like get out of here. And I kept worrying that at some point I would turn in some edit to Robin and she would say, well, this isn't really what I would hope for, but, um, it's good enough. Or, you know, 
at this point, I see that you can't do better than this. So I'm just going to accept it. It's done. And, but she never did. She always, she had unlimited patience and faith. She had the highest of standards and the most belief in me that I could continue to get better, that the book could continue to get better. It's great. It's just great to see that that editing still happens. Oh my gosh, it was you such know, a that, dream. You know that you know. There's always been this knock that too much of editing these days is acquisition, mm. and it's not really. I mean, there are lots of wonderful editors, and Robin is one of the best, I think. But so you didn't go to an MFA program, Mm-mm. which is really interesting. So you went to school and you studied what? So I went to I went to where are you college. from originally? I'm from Jersey originally. You are, yeah. <laughs> It's like we're we're very proud coming out of Jersey. I went to undergrad uh, in New York, and I studied English and Russian. So, like, I majored in English, minored in Russian. Where did you go to school? At Barnard College. At Barnard, sure. Um, and then I got out, and I applied to MFA programs, but it just I got this. I was very aggressively trying to get to Kamchatka at the time, and and so I was applying for that grant and MFA program simultaneously, and. And after a couple of years, the grant was sort of the first substantial thing that came through. Um, but the literary world was a world you knew you wanted to enter. Yes. So you took some jobs in that world as yes. well? Yeah. So when I was in, I worked in publishing for um, about seven years. And I worked for a small, a very small press that publishes kids' comic books. So I started, which we were talking right. about a little Toon. bit before. Yeah. Right. For Tune Books, which is fantastic, it's it's the brainchild of a brilliant, brilliant editor and thinker and artist named Francoise Mouly, who's the art editor at the New Yorker. She does the covers for the New Yorker. She's unbelievably brilliant. And I started there when I was nineteen. Wow! Um, so you were yeah. still in school. So I was still in school. So I would I would work for Tune, and I, like that was for me one of the huge advantages of going to school in New York that I was connected. I could you know go to class and then right afterwards go to work and have this have this experience it was incredible i had worked for a year before that my first job was at columbia university press so an academic press um when i was a freshman and a senior in high school and a, a freshman in college um it was always very much i think growing up in a in a community adjacent to new york city i had a very I really, really wanted to write books. I really wanted to be connected to a world of books. And I saw that some people were doing that. And I thought, okay, there's some model here to follow. And I don't know how to access it, but I'm going to try. So, Were your parents involved with anything like that? They, my mom is an artist. My mom's an actor. So she, she's, and she's still acting, um, which is, and she is such a hard worker. She is absolutely independent like she runs her life she decides how you know it's it's really really incredible and i think to grow up watching a model of a working artist made me see you can you can make a living at this maybe it's not you know what you necessarily anticipated or the sort of like you but know she's you doing it on her own terms. she's doing it on her own terms exactly and and she's had she has some incredible incredible credits and she also a lot of times the work she you know she does her play at libraries or at community centers or she so she does theater she does theater and like and she 
and and seeing that made me see you there are many different ways to make your art a feasible reality and i think i think about her model a lot i think about that with with so much reverence and and gratitude for being able to see especially a woman um a woman artist making it work in such close quarters um and so I, I thought, okay, how can I make it work? So I worked, I worked in publishing for a long time, which was a long time, relatively, you know, in my short life. Um, and that was incredible. And then eventually it became clear that I was spending a lot of time working on other people's projects in order to avoid my own projects. So then I started freelance copy editing and I did that for, for the, pretty much the whole time I was working on this book. I, um, I sort of copy edited and put commas in places and loved that. And it's been it's been an adventure. China. Well, it seems like it. And for someone who started at 19, it's not like you're 65 right, right. now. So no. this is your debut novel. Yeah. And I think we're going to hear your voice for years yeah. and years to come. And I can't thank you enough for being on, on The Literary Life and... I look forward to our reading tonight, which I think I'm, uh, you know, all of us are very excited about. And I know that this book that's gone into the world is going to find a very vast readership, as so. it already has. So thank you again. Thank you. And thank I hope you, so you really much. enjoy your two days in Miami. Thank you. <laughs> I know I will. I'm already enjoying it. <laughs> thank you so much for having me.